Thank you for those readings. Today we're looking at Elijah as part of a series the church is going through on the life of Elijah and Elisha. And today we're going to look at the contest that Elijah posed to King Ahab. But before we do that, I just want to explain to you a bit about uh, my life, if I, if I am allowed to do this. Just because what I'd like to say is, you know, a few years ago, my wife and I and our children went abroad as missionaries to the Middle East. I had at that time been a Christian for 25, 30 years, um, maybe longer even. And um, when we went to the Middle East, it was tough. It was really hard. There were hard times. And I have to be honest, I'm more broken now than I was when I went. And yet, I feel I've learned so much from that experience. I've learned so much to be reliant on him. I've learned to be more dependent on him. I've learned to have less control and stuff like that. And they're really important lessons. And that's really what I want to talk about today is what can we learn from the lessons that God puts us in? What can we learn from these tough times? Some of you might be really struggling with something and uh, finding out, well, where is God in this? What's happening? I don't, I don't understand it. And I'd really like to try and answer those questions, not directly, but maybe giving us all some tools to help us understand how to do this. So, as always, I think it's really good to go to the centre of the Bible, the cross, and look at how the New Testament reaches back and connects to the story of Elijah, what, what lessons it learns from that to help the people at that time, but also to go forward and show how it's relevant to us today. To do that, um, I'd like to look at the context, the characters and the conflicts that were involved. Always with the idea that it's, what am I, how am I learning from this? How can I take from what's said today and make it different in my own life? You see, the context that Elijah was in is that for three years there was famine in the, in the land of Israel. Three years before, at the time of the start of the famine, uh, Elijah went to King Ahab and, and uh, King Ahab refused to repent. He refused to change his ways. And as such, um, there was a famine. And not only was there no rain, there was no dew on the ground either. And so go forward three years and the land is in a terrible state. And God says to Elijah, I want you to go and talk to King Ahab. And uh, Elijah's not wonderfully impressed with all of this, but he's very obedient. Uh, and he connects with Obadiah. And Obadiah says, like, you're kidding me. You know, if you're going to send me, he's going to, you know, he's going to know I'm on your side and um, I'm in for it. And what's, what's to say you're not just going to scarper as soon as he turns up? Um, and I, the words, when you read the words, the, you know, King James or ESV, they don't put it in that way. But I can imagine that's exactly what Obadiah was saying. He's like, you've got to kid me. Really? I ain't going. <laughs> but as always, if you say, I will, 
he's obedient. Obadiah is this incredible character. So um, the setup is this. There is uh, a lot of pl uh, pluralism going on. There, people are following the, the, the god Baal or the goddess Asherah, as well as all the little gods as well. So there were lots and lots of small gods and big gods and, and everyone was just going from one to the other. And Elijah's like, no, stop limping between two opinions. Time to make your mind up. Time to stop and make your mind up. So let's look at the characters that we have here. We've got Elijah. Elijah uh, says in verse 21, you know, I and I only am left as a prophet of the Lord. Now we know that's not totally true because we've just heard about Obadiah, an amazing character. Uh, Obadiah hid a hundred prophets um, in two caves and uh, in order to do that he had to do it constantly. He had to provide for them for the water and he had to provide food um, but he did it very much in the shadows. He did it so that King Ahab wouldn't notice it and so he had a different calling. But we also had Elijah. Elijah was, as Ahab, King Ahab said, you know, you're the troublemaker. You're the loud voice. You're the irritant. I imagine Jezebel was saying, like, just get rid of him. Just get rid of him. That's the kind of the Elijah. So we've got Elijah, we've got Obadiah, we've got the hundred prophets. And in chapter 19, we, we hear of the remnant, the 7,000 that refused to bend the knee. So we've also got those. Then we've got the other characters. We've got King Ahab. We've got his wife Jezebel. We've got the 450 um, prophets of Baal. We've got the 400 prophets of Asherah. Um, they're all gods and goddesses of fertility. Interesting that the god of Baal is also known as the god of um, rain and dew. So that's kind of interesting because they're the two things that Elijah said won't happen. Um, and so they're those characters. And then the third group are just the people of Israel. And it's to these people that I believe Elijah really wanted to speak to and speak into their lives. Now, interesting as well, when you look at the scripture, it's really quite interesting because why Mount Carmel and why a sacrifice? If you're going to test it, why use that? Why not part waters or get a flock of um, pigs flying across the sky? You know, why a sacrifice? Why do that? And I think there's some reasons for this. Obviously, there are reasons for it. Firstly, Mount Carmel is high up. It's in Haifa. It's ele high elevation, so that means even after three years of famine, there's likely to be um, fertile ground there. And that would be considered like a stronghold of Baal. So Elijah was saying, right, I'm in your face. I am going to go into the enemy's territory and show you that it's all false. So I'm going to do that. But also, why offer a sacrifice? See, it was, sacrifices were done on the altar in the temple. And, and sacrifices were done for, generally for um, redemption, bringing back people to God. Uh, but in the temple. And when the temple was destroyed the first and second time after that, there were no more sacrifices. Even today, the Jews don't have an, a temple. Therefore, they don't have an altar to sacrifice on. So why that? And I, I think it's because Elijah wanted to do a few things. He wanted the people to remember. Remember. It's, it's a key thing often is remember. He took up the two big stones, uh, 12 big stones and, and rebuilt the altar. And, that, and that's mentioned in there. And that's a reason that he, it's put there so that people can remember and see that he was building this altar up. 
but also the altar was to bring people back to God, to sacrifice, as a prelude to what Jesus did. Jesus was on the altar. Elijah, John the Baptist. John the Baptist crying in the desert. Um, Elijah, a troublemaker, crying in the desert. So both these were that, um, voices. And it's kind of a prelude to what Jesus has done, dying for us all so that we can go back to the Father, so that our hearts can be turned back to God. So the people of Israel at that time, they would have sensed this, they would have seen it, and it would have done something for them. They would have sensed what was happening. What we don't see in the story read is the middle section where the prophets of Baal start talking and singing and then dancing and then going fanatic and then cutting themselves and going really crazy. And yet, no answer, no answer, no answer, no answer. Because the gods don't exist. Of course you're not going to get an answer. They don't exist. And then we get to chapter uh, verse 36. And um, Elijah prays this beautiful prayer. Beautiful prayer. And first he says, you know, um, I've done what you've told me to do. You know, pointing to God. Always pointing to God. The life of a humble man or woman points to God always points to God. The life of a humble man does that. And then he says, I want, please answer me these two things. I want the people to know two things. One Lord, that you are God and that you have turned the hearts of men to back to you. And that's the important thing. That is the key thing to it. And that's what Paul picks up on in Romans. You see, unfortunately, what happens in chapter 19, even though the people were repentant for a bit, they then went back to their old ways yet again. And Paul is, you know, Elijah rather, is really devastated by this. And yet Paul, in Romans 12, he says, in Romans 11, it says, you know, that, that there's still a remnant. God said, I still have a remnant. There's still a remnant of people. And Paul talks about, um, in those days, that they are a remnant, but this time chosen by grace. It's by grace that people are chosen. You see, in, in the New Testament time, it was the emerging church, the young, fragile church. They had their own Jewish tradition. The Gentiles didn't have that, yet they carried some of those things forward with them. And Paul was saying, no, no. You see, the Israelis, they tried to get redemption and justification, not by faith, but by works. They try to be justified by what they did, but not by who they are and what they believed. See, it's God that does this. It's God that turns the heart. If I'm to boast, it's not because of what I've done. I boast because of what he has done. It's all about what God has done for me. And I think that's important, you see, because in our present day, we have idols, we have balisms. Modern balism has, has tried to say and take away the mystery of life and dismiss grace. Modern balism says, actually, you are entitled to something. You are, you should be independent. Don't depend on something. You know, work hard, earn the money, get the status, get the intellect, get the beauty. Yes, these things are, are worthy to follow and do, but they aren't what we worship. They aren't what we follow. There is no such thing as atheism in the sense that everyone worships something. And you either worship that 
or you worship God. There is no middle ground. If Elijah was to knock on your door, and knock on my door and say, hey Simon, how you doing? Um, you're limping, mate, between two opinions. You're sitting on a fence, Simon. I, am I sitting on a fence? I don't think I'm sitting on a fence. Am I sitting on a fence? You see, that's the challenge we need to face. In Romans 12, 2, it says, you know, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world. And that's what Paul was saying to the people of those days. Don't be conformed to the patterns. You know, you've lived life following these rituals, these, all these laws and these commands. Don't do that. Don't be like the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector who beat on his heart and said, forgive me, a sinner. So that's what Paul wanted people to realise. It's, it's like, it isn't what you do. It's what's inside of you. What's God done for you? you? See, when I was deep in my transgressions, God reached down. He pulled me up. His overwhelming, reckless love chased me till it found me. And when I was still far off, when I decided to go my own way, God would look out the window and search. And when he found, finds me, he would then run after me and he'd put his arms around me. He'd put his cloak on me and he'd put his ring on my finger. It's God that does all of this. What do I do? It's not what I do. I accept what God has done for me. See, that's our faith. We become Christians not for what we've done or how we've done it. It's what God has done. It's his, the redemption through the, the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection from the dead that I can now be called a child of God. It's only through that that can happen. But it's then, it says, you know, in Romans 12 too, it carries on, it says, you know, do not be conformed by the pattern of this day, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that being transformation is, is a continuous sense. It's a present continuous term that we must constantly strive and, and press hold of and, and strive for that which Christ has taken hold of us. And that's what Paul says. That's, that's a sign of maturity is to constantly be a seeker, a pilgrim of the way. And this is the charge for us. When we are in difficult times, when we are in the valleys, if we know the scriptures, if we know God, if we understand that relationship, then whatever storms we face, whatever challenges we have, whatever hard times come our way, if we know God, then we're okay. We will get through it. The fire won't consume us. The waters won't overtake us. We will get through it. And at times, we'll walk on water. We'll dance on the waters. That'll be the times. Yes, there are hard times. And this week's been tough, hasn't it? It's been really hard. Steve was a lovely man. And it just taken suddenly. And it's really hard for us to understand. But he was a humble man. He was a prayerful man. He used to get up really early and, and walk around and do prayers. It's like, wow, what a wonderful man. But also, he kept searching and seeking. And he was studying, wasn't he? He was doing studying for his ordination. I was very privileged to be part of a small group that would meet when we would discuss what he was studying. And he would be so animated by this and so full of joy. Everything, I've got his books, I'm very privileged, I've got a lot of his books, and he's underlined lots of it all. You can see the excitement there. When it's my time, I want to say, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. 
and there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all those that have longed for his appearing. We need to be constantly renewing our mind. We need to be on that journey. We need to be pilgrims of the way. And by constantly doing that, when tough times do come, and they will come, we then have a sure foundation to stand on. And then we can comfort one another as well. And at the end, at the end, there'll be this amazing banquet and we'll all come together and we all can celebrate what God has done. God has turned our hearts back to him. That was the prayer of Elijah and that's my prayer for us today. May God turn our hearts back to him every day. Amen.